Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hello, everyone. Today we're going to hear a super interesting interview that Eva made with Anna Sjöblom the 19th of March. And she's the new director of React Europe. Hi, everyone. I'm here today sitting at the headquarters of React Europe with Anna Hoplom, the current director of React, Action on Antibiotic Resistance. Hi, Anna. I'm very happy to be sitting with you today here. How are you doing? I'm doing fine and very nice to have you here in our small and cozy office. Very sunny and springy as well. Yes. So it's very nice. Yes. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Definitely. So my name is Anna. I'm from Sweden and uh, I have a background actually originally from nursing care. And then I've studied public health and I've also done quite a lot of humanitarian work. Two years after I was uh, graduated as a nurse, I, I engaged with the MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, and then I went on various missions actually up to 2021 when I switched a little bit and uh, joined React in the beginning of last year as mm -hmm. a director of React Europe. So being engaged with questions around health, I would expect or maybe that you encounter antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance before you actually became acquainted or be part of React. Can you tell us a little bit your personal stories behind AMR perhaps? Definitely. I mean, I think like in life, my first encounter professional-wise with uh, bacteria as it were resistant to antibiotics was, I think, almost during my first weeks at working as a nurse because I actually started working at one of the infectious disease wards here in, in Stockholm. And that was at the time when patients with MRSA, there was an influx of patients with that, both that have been traveling from Sweden, but also other cases. And like, really, we had to adapt the, <laughs> the routines at the ward quite a lot. And it was a, a quite a big challenge for us to also, you know, with a prolonged duration of stay for the patients and a lot of worry for the families and also for the patients and stuff and actually also some worries among us as a group as healthcare staff with the risk and, and so forth so that was my first kind of encounter of the problem at an individual level but I think my like the eye-opener for me was after coming back from humanitarian work with MSF I, I spent several months and also worked in several projects with a severely acute malnutrition where we had, you know, the most vulnerable and, and smallest patients. As you know, severe acute malnutrition is a life-threatening condition. And almost all the children that I met also had some kind of infection. It was not really on my radar that these infections were not going to be, like, treatable with mm -hmm. antibiotics we had. It was actually first I mean when coming back and reading the, the some of the studies that have been done in this very same structure that I've been working in this time was in Niger in Sahel region where that had several like really severe food crisis and I saw then you know the the high acquisition rates of ESBL and also then realizing that actually the structures where I work were not really safe and adapted to actually protecting these these very sick patients from resistant bacteria. So mm -hmm. that's when I understood that, you know, the problem was not only in, you know, high income countries in, in our parts of the world, but actually also that in low-income countries and also affecting the most vulnerable individuals. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of talk nowadays about the differences of how resistance might be affecting different parts of the world and where the challenges like can be very related to the context around. So the parts of the world where you maybe were doing humanitarian work were facing different kind of challenges than 
you know, the high-income countries and the problems we might be having here or the narratives about AMR that we're having here. That's very interesting because, as I understand, the role of REACT is actually kind of bring light to all of these and, and work a little bit in the interfaces of the research, the science, the high-income countries' vision, the low-income countries' vision, trying to bring people together as well, which is very difficult in particular topics. So I want you to tell us a little bit from your perspective what is react what are you guys doing yeah react is a network a global network we have several nodes so centers in different parts of the world and we actually work with both what you mentioned there like trying to translate new knowledge into policy change and we're also been since the start like a real catalyst for change and coming from another organization that has worked, you know, a little bit activist culture, this is also there existing with React, like push for change and and, and try to make decision makers move mm-hmm. on a global level as well as on country level. But also I would say that React is actually part of, you know, defining solutions and mm-hmm. piloting ways of working. So we based, for example, in, we have uh, work in India and Ecuador and Zambia and Kenya, where we also are in different way piloting interventions on community level that we try to kind of also think of a bottoms up approach of like that will inform us to also do the advocacy work on, on a global level. And there are several good examples of this. For example, we work with something called Antibiotic Smart Communities in India, where the team there had identified, you know, that the work with these national action plans that we talk a lot about around antibiotic resistance was very like top down and also like very much focused on specific sectors and and groups that not involving communities or other target groups and here was really like trying to flip that around and go out and define a program on how communities could actually decide what they would like to to do yes i think i think actually one of the key things that i see with the way that react works is concept of context right that Mm -hmm. the different places actually might need different things and you will never get to know those unless you were with the people that are doing the groundwork there in the places and I think that's what's so beautiful about your big network and the different parts you know React Africa, React Asia Pacific, React Europe here where you guys mm-hmm. are working that they bring the, the expertise and, and the stories and narratives that are especially curated to those places right in a sense and also maybe see how they can inform each other in a sense. Yeah, because React is a network that were like initiated by connecting different champions with quite different backgrounds also, both from Latin America, North America, uh, Africa and, and Asia, where also I think as a network, then the work has been developing really depending on what those centers have seen is relevant in their context. So that makes React a bit different to other organizations also. That then when, And also something that I liked with React actually was that kind of different model of, you know, I come from MSF who still have their biggest operational center, five of them, all of them in Europe. And this was a different way of working, like really starting from, you know, the local context and deciding what what needs to be done there. But there is, of course, a lot of work to tie this in together. And every, we're a small network, so, and sometimes people tend to think we're much bigger than we are because we try to make a lot of noise and be visible and, and out there and quite be at the table mm-hmm. with, where policy is shaped and so forth. But we are also really trying to work locally with communities and, mm-hmm. and developing different solutions and approaches to work with antibiotic resistance at the local level, which sometimes is, you know, very broad and not like specific to antibiotic resistance but like wash and you know in india where the antibiotic smart communities you know focused on farming and soap production and also involving different groups that are already there that are not like actually like working with antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. but with health and community engagement and women's group and all that so that's a very interesting part of our our work that we also now try to pilot outside of india to other contexts i i completely agree 
agree with you because I feel like one thing that strikes to me when I moved into the problem of AMR and started working on AMR is how AMR is at the same time a specific concept, but also something that crosses barriers on other issues and problems. Like it could be the way that we treat our animals and we do agriculture. It could be the way that we prevent infections in general in the hospitals and the community. It could be about bringing clean water to households and, and cities. And then it's hard to really see how resistance relates to this problem. And I think the work that REACT has done on trying to surface this, look, if we actually address this problem, we could also be making better the problem of resistance. And I think even though that makes it also more challenging, you know, it also makes it more real and tacit that the possible change that can happen, right? It's not just resistance. It's if we bring better water and clean water to everybody we are solving many more other issues right but resistance in particular could be one of them so uh, i think it's very inspiring to work in that way really close to the communities and seeing the interface of how resistance affects everything else or can be affected by everything else around i want to get now more your personal perspective so you join relatively recently react what led you there personally? What are the opportunities and the challenges for yourself that you saw by taking the role as director of React Europe? Well, on a personal level, I had been working many years for a big organization, MSF, and also I was kind of really wanting to, to find that one issue that you can see tangible change over time with policy-wise, advocacy-wise. And I was inspired by React already before joining because actually we share a lot of common common views when it comes, for example, on like research and development of antibiotics and the access barriers that are there when it comes to making antibiotics available in low and middle income countries. And so that kind of spirit. And then I was also actually very interested in joining a network with this particular setup where we're small. I mean, it just took me one month and I had interacted with everyone we're like less than 30 people and having you know just a shorter kind of time span in getting things done than in a bigger organization and then other thing also was like I think people have not really understood how big of an issue antibiotic resistance is for sustainable development and to kind of understand that better and I also like the the fact of having a mix of just you know have both questioning and being the watchdog but also part of the solution and uh, the mix of having implementing activities and be there you know ready to support governments when they need help but also being able to to have that independence that react has to to give a like a not being part of a particular system or public agency have that freedom of you know speaking out also and give criticism when it's needed <laughs> but yes. also as what React has done over the years is also like being that platform, that convener like we will do in the Uppsala meeting mm -hmm. coming up, really making sure that, you know, actors that don't always exchange with each other have this platform. So there's a lot of things that for me was really inspiring when mm -hmm. I got to know React, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think in a sense, I can see a little bit of myself in you in the sense that I also find a lot of beauty and, and gratitude on being able to make other people's work easier and mm -hmm. try and get them to find each other and for them to work together and these beautiful things down the line come up because the work that you did actually initiated that uh, or inspired mm. that or uh, it's very very nice and I think coming up with that energy of like you want things to happen it's mm. always nice I remember when we knew that React was going to have a new director I mean you guys at home React is here in Uppsala as well so we know about each other and even though we don't work in the same place exactly we collaborate and we heard oh React is recruiting a new director and we were all like who's gonna be because you know really if it's someone that is already around 
down, maybe you don't get the same fresh ideas as someone that comes marginally from far away, in a sense, you know, and you were already very acquainted with resistance, but you are coming from a different setup, uh, working with MSF and working more from the nursing area, right? So we were like, yeah, this this woman that worked with MSF is joining and we think it's going to be great. So it was lovely that, you know, having this fresh air of wanting to do things in this way is very, very nice, I think. I hope that so far you are happy with the position, even though I'm sure there are the challenges of coming into a new setup, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely happy. And as you say, maybe it was a bit of a surprise with this kind of recruitment to a network like React. But for me, at least it was a perfect match with my background and also what I wanted to do in life. So, so, so yes, I like it. And also, I mean, maybe we're similar in the way that, you know, we're interested in a lot of different things, <laughs> being more this generalist yes. type <laughs> rather than, you know, very focused in one specific area, mm-hmm. because I'm actually also quite passionate about communication and about also, you know, working on like securing financial resources and all these things that is part of a director's role as well as management and so forth but and it's also actually quite a good um, luxury to be part of Uppsala University where there is so much knowledge in this field already and have that exchange with that so it's also been quite interesting and Mm -hmm. like switch for me to come into that system from Mm -hmm. like more the NGO community so I I really like it. Way of working probably is a little bit different but uh, you have access kind of like across the corner to this expertise Mm -hmm. and and the experts even though it's a bit different but I think you guys as React being part of Salah University also bring the aspect of how science should inform policy which I think it's essential in in this day and age that, you know, Mm. the policies are based on foundations that are true and that have Mm. been proved and that are based on research. And I think Uppsala University doesn't have a lot of that apart from React and some other actors. Mm. So I think it's essential that you guys are also kind of part of Uppsala University here. Yeah, and I think actually we, together with others, of course, are really contributing to this, you know, third assignment that you call the university to do, to be doing that sometimes maybe it's a little bit lost actually on like, you know, the role the university have of like taking part of what is, you know, providing solutions to challenges in society and discussions and sharing knowledge beyond, you know, the academic work. So, and that I think it's also been something that React has been quite focused on when it comes to you know where we sit in in the university Mm -hmm. area definitely i agree and that third uh, task Mm. many times gets lost in between and we academia can be a bit siloed and isolated and academics talking to academics Mm. and i always say that science is not finished until it is communicated beyond Mm. a research paper and a conference proceeding you know you have to kind of think is there anything else that can Mm. inform be informed by this research mm. and and it's very nice there and with antibiotic resistance and amr we do have a challenge because it is a complex phenomenon and problem to convey and i think that's another thing with i mean i guess it's not the first time that you talk about this in this pod but how difficult it is that is we talk about you know bacterial infections that can affect everyone and that also are caused by so many different pathogens and then different kinds of infections and symptoms and it's not one single disease even though like we know which ones are the most dangerous mm-hmm. to people mm-hmm. Burden of disease is huge when it comes to bacterial infections in general, but also to resistance. 1.3 million people almost died, according to the Gram study. So we know it's a huge problem, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to get that, you know, still that urgency across mm-hmm. and also for people to understand what it is. I think in the in the community that works <laughs> with this have this problem of actually like nailing that narrative that you can the you challenge. Can say like the challenge. Yeah it is. It and is. also that the second thing I also believe in is like okay how how important it is to look at this as like an old systems change issue and you know that is 
all of society approach that is needed because like we are really working in different you know areas where mm-hmm. we think maybe too technical about the problem we don't really link it to sustainable development broad, more broadly mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. for sure I, I mm-hmm. as we were saying before the same way that you know AMR or resistance be affected by different mm-hmm. parts you know poverty access to water infection prevention control measures economic issues mm-hmm. all of this makes it even more difficult to summarize to explain why is it a problem altogether, mm. right? To bring it to the people. Yeah, partially it's because of this, but partially it's also because of this, and partially it's also because mm. of this. And then people are like, well, okay, but then what? What mm. What can we do? What is it? Mm. What is the solution? It's like, there's no solution. There is no one solution, right? Mm. We just, as you said, we need to get to a point where we can sustain it in mm. a way. And we can kind of, if we are good enough or try and if hard enough maybe we can be a little bit ahead of the problem but I don't feel like it's something that we are really going to be able to solve and put behind us I don't think so maybe in 200 years time or in the very Mm. very long future but not now now we need to address what the issues are the different aspects of the issues how we can work together and how can we get to this more sustainable solutions right Mm. i would like now to ask you uh, a little bit about what does react have in the pipeline what you guys are working with what is are some things that you are specifically excited to be working on and putting out for the people out there Yes, I mean, this year, first half of the year, we've been working quite a lot with the Swedish EU presidency. So we're part of the high level meeting that Sweden hosted in March. And we also actually in a couple of weeks have a follow up meeting, which is a much smaller one, really focusing on dialogue, looking at, you know, trying to unlock some of the barriers for collective action when it comes to this problem. And Mm -hmm. we all know that there's a high level meeting in 2024 on AMR, and there's a lot of processes going on. But here we try to to aim to like explore this part of the, you know the strong narrative that is needed but also like reframing the issue again to whole society challenge but also here coming to now finding maybe some key steps ahead and components of this roadmap that we talk about ahead of the high level meeting Mm -hmm. next year so this is like really like both looking at you know what needs to be done but also like what targets can be put up for these meetings but it's also like with with meetings like this because we can say like you know there's a lot of meetings on (laughs) (laughs) around you know the the problem and how to address it but like here we'd also try to make actors that not always meet come together Mm -hmm. so it's really a mix of academia with you know civil society and also intergovernmental organizations and experts and other key actors so like hopefully this you know an exchange that is not always you know not only the usual suspects to to be here so it's it's a smaller kind of platform that focus on that dialogue and to unlock some of these uh, barriers that might Mm -hmm. be there yeah i have to say Mm. that uh, i'm a bit informed about this Mm. i will be participating in some capacity and Mm. i had a snapshot of the lineup of people coming Mm. and i have to say that i am so excited of the people that are going to be talking with each other because I feel like there's going to be a lot of this think tank type of idea that people just coming up with years of experience in different aspects of this and having the right facilitators, the right spot to just discuss this and coming up with Mm. the roadmap or what things need to be worked on Mm. coming forward to you know the United Nations meeting in AMR in 2024 in New York it feels like it's going to be very rich Mm. and I think having you know a good sunny spring weather that kind of you know get people to just sit under the sun and talk about these things feels like it's going to be really really fruitful yeah yeah yeah. hopefully it will be yeah definitely and also one thing is I keep hearing this from in here and there you know there's no civil society working with antibiotic resistance I think that was also up on ECMA made you know like okay where is this people and it's true I mean we are a smaller group engaged in antibiotic resistance and from a civil society perspective but 
we are there and we also want to showcase some of these you know experience during this meeting also and and build that alliances and that is also I mean talking about things that React is working on this year of course like this is one activity but we also have like a lot of engagement with students going on both in the Asia Pacific node and React in Africa and they're also like trying to boost and build the future generation of ambassadors in this field and and I think this work is extremely important and also like we need to keep that going. For the people out there, if you have first not heard of React ever, mm -hmm. well, I'm very happy that this is the first time that you hear about the work that they're doing. But I have to say, you guys might be small, but you are incredibly hardworking. The amount of things that you guys put out in terms of policy reports, mm -hmm. um, challenging people to think in, in different ways, you know, um, I feel like you are a small organization with a really, really big heart and with a, a very long legs that kind of touch up in a lot of different places around the world, which is very useful. So, of course, we're going to leave, uh, you know, links and reports on the show notes of the most recent things that you guys have been working with. And I hope that there's also some follow up on this meeting that is going to happen in now in a couple of weeks or when you're hearing this, maybe it has even just happened on the 9th and 10th of May. Anything else that you want to bring to the table of the work that React is doing? Yeah, I think one thing that we haven't touched upon, but was also like when React was starting and what comes from is like, okay, there was in 2004, five like who had already like a first strategy but there was very little following up on this but it was also like a time when it was like the new antibiotics did not come to the market anymore and that was the knowledge but like there was not really done thorough analysis neither on what are the problems with you know this dry pipeline when it comes to new antibiotics so that was also one you know key thing that React started to engage with from the start and that we continue to do. So we also recently published a policy brief that was based on an expert workshop that we had in the end of last year on, you know, trying to identify key bottlenecks of the early stages of antibiotic research and development, and also like exploring different public and not-for-profit solutions. So that is also something that policy brief is available. And I think it's one of the key work that also react together with others have done over the years like really try to put the spotlight on this problem that i think several of us know about mm -hmm. and you know the fact that in the last three decades hardly any new antibiotics have been developed and also like there's a knowledge <laughs> or like a, some kind of awareness of that that model that is Mm -hmm. you know for financing this research and development work is broken because mm -hmm. also like the pharma industry had most of them you know disengaged and that's another way of us trying to actually gather the people that have expertise in the matter and like trying to iron out some you know specific ways forward so that is something also I could could mention here and maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk about more in depth than <laughs> some other occasion but definitely very very nice sadly we are kind of running to the end of our interview but before we sign off I will like to go back to talking a bit about your personal insights and I would like to know if you have any sort of wish list you know now you came in almost two years ago as a new director of react But apart from your you know, professional capacity of React Director, what are some things that you would like to see more of? What is your kind of wish list to the world and to the universe? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about two, two wishes. And one of them we touched upon already, and it's about making antibiotic resistance more of like a human issue, to more like put people at the center and also trying to identify the stories that, you know, it can be about today, but also that, the, you know, what we can expect in the future with, you know, this very important cornerstone of healthcare in all countries being, you know, destroyed to get that more of a like a, a human aspect on that. And the other one is maybe a follow up on it, but it's 
really what we talked about, integrating antibiotic resistance more in how we look at sustainable development. And we have a lot of like comparisons to be done with, you know, the climate where, you know, we see like a Paris agreement is actually helping when it comes to, you know, making countries accountable for dealing with the problems of some kind of more legally binding contract on this would be also on my wish list. And the third one, I think Sweden has done a great job over the years in actually champion antibiotic resistance here in Sweden. We started early and also quite engaged at the international arena. But I also think that countries that do that, like Sweden, also really need to make sure that this is part of their development cooperation strategies and also funding, because what we know is that funding is lacking. And then we talk really about, you know, funding to support programs and projects in low and middle income countries. And we can do that in many different ways. But I think, you know, just acknowledging this as an important theme and -hmm. priority Mm -hmm. within development cooperation funding is also quite important. I think sometimes it feels like those worlds are a little bit disconnected. Mm -hmm. We have the international community talking about, you know, what we can do together and countries coming together in different platforms, but also like the the funding and needs to follow that. So that's my also on my wish list. Yeah, so Mm. more political commitment in the way of being in the agenda, both nationally, internationally, and also on the development in Mm. a sense. So yeah, I hope that some politicians are listening to us right now. That would be very, very nice. And I agree with you, funding on that is needed. And I think perhaps also funding that helps this human side of AMR, Mm. it's needed because I feel like there is a lot of improvement in in the national action plans and countries many different countries putting aside money for research and development when it comes to resistance but the majority of that funding is funneled through a medical lens in a sense i think it cannot just be related to that it has to be open up it has to include the humanities it has to include other kind of projects that also look at it from maybe anthropological aspect or ethnographical aspect that is more people center and not only these medical solutions which are mm. also important but they're not just the only solution out there uh, before we sign off just the last 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 question is anything else that you want to bring up to our audience today that you would like them to know about you or react or anything that's coming up no i think it, i would like to invite everyone of course to check out and follow us on twitter and follow the different policy briefs and, and get in contact with us if they like and also i mean we have several interesting projects also piloted in in ecuador and india and also in 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 Zambia and Kenya, like in those places, also for the international audience to find out what we do there. Great. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much for the time today. Mm -hmm. I wish you the best on this last two weeks before this very important dialogue meeting and hope to keep collaborating with you around here in Uppsala and internationally. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you, Eva. Welcome back from this interview, Elin. I'm really looking forward to hear your insights and what things have you learned about React with this interview? I learned so much about React in general. I thought I had a very good concept of what they were doing, but it turned out to be my knowledge was a bit limited, actually. And I, I really, what really stuck with me is how you described it as a small organization with a big heart and long legs. I think that was like, they should have that as their like punchline. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. That's how I feel that they are. uh, Maybe also because I know many of the people working at React personally, so they are like close to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I feel like they have very good intentions, like a lot of, you know, civil society organizations and non-for-profits, very honest, and they are very true to themselves Mm -hmm. and they try to be there where they are needed and try to think outside the box. So I feel like even though they might be only 30 people spread all around the world, mm. they are able to reach out far. Yeah, so, they so make yes, a lot great. of noise. Yes. Which is great. <laughs> yes, it's like wherever there's something about policy and AMR, uh, mm. 
there is react <laughs> yeah and I, i think that relates a lot to what you talked a bit about you know the the third leg of university the communication of science mm-hmm. and how important that is and that part of the interview i really enjoyed because i think that is quite often forgotten right mm-hmm. science is not done until it's communicated yes that's what i always say and i really really live by it mm. because I don't think it's enough to just be talking among scientists, which is important for, mm. you know, the research to progress. But there is much more that you can kind of take out of that. And I think that in a sense that relates a bit to how this podcast came about, which was we're bringing out these very great people to Uppsala University to give talks about the research, to share the knowledge on the science they're doing. But there is something else there you yeah. know like the stories behind the people working on science so it's a little bit the same idea that you know yeah research is needed but communicating the research in a way that is not just for the scientific audience is also very important yeah and i mean it is a problem that is affecting everyone yeah so i mean gonna get closer and closer to people and then spreading understanding might also help handling like the fear of the unknown as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. You know what just came out to my uh, with with a sentence that you just said is like maybe we can remake the movie everything everywhere all at once. I don't know if you've seen the movie; it's about <laughs> multiverses and multiple universes, and I feel like that tagline also can work for AMR. So maybe mm-hmm. we can remake a movie with that kind of concept just for AMR. That would be, be a way to talk about it. <laughs> be something for React to do in the future, maybe. Yeah, they are involved in some projects also in other places in the world that had to do with art and, you know, um, interpretive dances and plays and stuff like that. So it could be nice to think about maybe making a movie yeah. about AMR. Mm. Everything, everywhere, all at once. AMR. <laughs> AMR edition. Any other insights you would like to share with us from listening to this interview? Yeah, I got really inspired when you talked about the concept of context. And like also the fact that they have centers spread all over the world. And how important that is to like see the local context of the problem. Mm-hmm. I think we have discussed this a bit in different episodes as well. But it's very worth coming back to. Mm-hmm. And also how they had this like student groups and mm-hmm. inspiring the new generation and oh, oh I got inspired yeah it, it is a good crowd to be around I feel like and, mm. and to keep tabs on so I would recommend anybody listening to us if you found the word of react interesting they do have a newsletter that they send out every month pretty interesting I'm gonna leave the link in the show notes so you can just go directly there and sign up for their newsletter and of course there's a ton a ton of information in their website the work that they do with the policy reports and briefs and suggestions they have a very big toolbox with a lot of information that can be used in different parts of the world to bring light to the problem of AMR and to try to find local solutions as well so that's pretty pretty cool. Mm. I also really think that Anna is the right person in the right role. Mm -hmm. I really felt a lot of confidence in her that she will take React to a new level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was also interested to talk to her because after for a really long time where it felt like, you know, the main phases of React were Otto Karsh, he has been working really hard for a really long time on shining light on this and getting the network to work properly and getting these connections all around the world and people within React have been sharing different roles within the organization, people that were first in other positions that they took over as directors and stuff but it felt like it was within the organization and as I said in the interview, getting someone with a fresh vision and someone that comes from a related kind of world, mm. like it could be MSF and nursing and having been there in the places where help matters but coming from outside with fresh ideas and perspectives and get the thing to move forward. It's important and it was great to sit down and talk to her about Mm. it. And with that, we are going to move to the news where we are also going to talk about a recent publication by React and then two very, very hard, but very interesting articles, scientific articles. See you there. Woohoo! 
So welcome back to the news section. Eva, you're starting us off with something from React, actually. Yeah, so I wanted to start by bringing to all of you a new expert policy brief that React has published back in the mid of March. And this policy brief comes after an expert workshop that they had back in November. So this is also you get a, a glimpse of how React works. So React thinks that new ideas might be needed in a specific topic and they are able to bring a group of professionals, people that might come from different disciplines or perspectives, but they can talk together about how things might move forward in a specific area. And then they pull all the discussion, the things that are talked about in these kind of workshops, and then they build expert policy briefs on these topics. So in this case, the topic was antibiotic research and development. And after the initiation of a project called REMAP, Revisiting Effective Models to Advance the Antibiotic Pipeline at REACT, they made this workshop and they came up with this policy brief. This uh, expert policy brief has as a title Identifying Key Bottlenecks in Early Stages of Antibiotic R&D and Exploring Public and Not-for-Profit Solutions. And it comes out with five main takeaways on how more not-for-profit involvement can happen in the area of antibiotics R&D. The main key takeaways can be summarized as first, there is a need for an increased governmental ownership of the issue and political leadership. Two, there is a need for a strengthened global coordination and exchange of knowledge and expertise in this topic. Three, we need to provide longer-term, sustainable, targeted and coordinated funding for this area. Four, we could actually use an expansion of the use of public and not-for-profit models in discovery and early stages of research and development. And last but not least, that we really need to focus on building stronger regional institutions and networks because there is a lot of expertise in different parts of the world. And as we said, context is also key. So maybe how we can utilize and strengthen these antibiotic R&D in different parts of the world might also look different. So we need to kind of put some effort there so the regional institutions and networks can be stronger. Mm. If you are interested in, of course, reading the whole report and also the uh, summary page that React has built up, you can find those links on the show notes. And with this policy brief out of out of our way, we are going to focus now on the more scientific natural science articles that we're bringing for you this uh, month of May. So Ellen, let's start with your paper of the month. Can you tell us what you have learned and what this paper is all about? Absolutely. So I have read a paper named Population Level Impacts of Antibiotic Usage on the Human Gut Microbiome. And it was published in Nature Communications the 2nd of March. This was a super interesting paper and they have done a lot of data analysis. So first and foremost, just so we're all on the same page, the microbiome is the collection of all microbes that we have in and on our bodies. Mm -hmm. So before, it's been a lot of small studies that look into how consuming antibiotics affect our microbiome. What happens, what kind of resistance we get, and so on and so on. But this paper differ in the way that they have looked at a huge data set of different microbiomes. And the microbiomes are collected from uh, all over the world, spanning a lot of different countries. And this means that they have been able to do more of a population level analysis. Mm -hmm. So they have looked into what kind of antibiotic resistance genes that they see, so ARGs shortened, (laughs) and how the abundance and richness of these ARGs could be correlated to the consumption of antibiotics in different countries. Mm -hmm. All right, so they basically move away from this idea that, you know, we can take antibiotics and our microbiome obviously is going to be affected. You know, a lot of people know if you take antibiotics for an infection in your throat, you might get diarrhea because your microbiome gets affected. But they go a step further and then they think, okay, if this happens on an individual basis, maybe we can take the data from, I don't know, maybe WHO or some other institutions that gather how much antibiotics being used in a particular place. And then look also at the microbiome of a lot of people together. Mm. Yeah, exactly. How do they do that? So first and foremost, that they have this huge data sets of different microbiomes and they 
try to find what antibiotic resistance genes that they have in these microbiomes. Mm -hmm. They are also able to connect these different ARGs to which bacterial species that has them and how these have been transferred between different uh -huh. bacterial species. Oh, so cool. So the concept of horizontal gene transfer that I'm sure that you have talked about mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. So they can like track how the bacteria share these genes with each other. That's really cool. And they have produced like a big network and see how this is all correlated. If you're interested in these things, you should definitely check out the paper because it's <laughs> super cool. But either way, uh, they were able to see a direct correlation between the consumptions of antibiotics and the RG levels in the microbiome of different countries. Uh -huh. So in the countries where they consume more antibiotics per capita, they could see a higher abundance of ARGs in the microbiome of the people who live there. Let me ask you a question. What kind of people did they do this analysis on? Was it people that have taken antibiotics or was it people that you know, just random samples or do they know if they took antibiotics recently? That is an excellent question. They actually only look at healthy individuals uh -huh, who had okay. not taken antibiotics the last three months. I All think. right. So that's mm -hmm. even more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one main takeaway that I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. But then the second takeaway is that they could see two distinct resistotypes. Mm -hmm. What is a resistotype? Yeah, that's a good question. So resistotypes is the collection of resistance genes within a person. So they looked at individual human ARG profiles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they could see two very distinct resistotypes. Mm -hmm. So one that was more common... But then one that is, was found in like less frequent that they named FAM. <laughs> so this resistotype was associated with a much higher overall resistance level. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And the thing is that when they tried this out and treated people with this more common resistotype with antibiotics, they could see the shift to the FAMP resistotype. Uh -huh. mm. And the thing is that, as we said, in this data set, they did not look into people who had consumed antibiotics. So there were no correlation between the consumption of antibiotics in different countries and the prevalence of this resistotype. Mm -hmm. So they believe that this resistotype is a population level impact of how we consume antibiotics. All right. So they think that this consumption rate in different countries and the farm resistotype is actually connected Linked. Uh -huh. in some way. Mm -hmm. Because as we know, the consumption of antibiotics drive, for example, especially the resistance in gram-negative bacteria. Mm -hmm. And these gram-negative bacteria then colonize our guts and they share their resistance genes with our commensal bacteria. Mm -hmm. So this will mean that we in our gut or in our microbiome will have a pool of resistant organisms associated with this FAMP resistotype. Mm -hmm. And they will share these genes with the commensal bacteria in our gut and in our body. And then these will be selected for in different ways depending on how much antibiotic is consumed in the country. Uh -huh. Does so that make sense? Yeah, that's how their correlation mm. might be happening or why if in general there's more consumption in the country that might end up creating mm. these different resistomes uh, yeah, profiles. Yeah, resistotype <clears throat> profiles. That's a very amazing yes. <laughs> investigation. This is so cool because... As I understand, we have had some sort of travel, I would say, in general, to to find evidence that the more a country consumes antibiotics, the more resistant genes mm. there are mm. in general. Yeah. You know, I know that this has been a study in different environmental pockets, different environmental mm. samples and areas. And I don't think they saw such a strong correlation as we see obviously in this in this paper mm. that yeah there is a very nice i mean if you look at the graphs you see that the the points really fit to the line which mm. means there is a good correlation which you know obviously you, we can talk about what is causation versus you know yeah. the yeah, correlation yeah, yeah. but yeah it kind of makes sense and we might need to dig deeper a bit in the mechanisms behind this or why this is actually working that way but this is incredible first evidence that you know yeah it doesn't really matter if you take antibiotics if you live in a place where a lot of antibiotics are taken mm. your collection of resistant genes in your gut or other parts of your yeah. microbiome mm. 
might be different. Yeah, because that's also noticed to add that in this analysis, they focus on the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. But we also have a microbiome on the different parts of our bodies. And they looked into that as well. But they, mm -hmm. I think they saw the most diverse antibiotic resistant gene uh, diversity in the gut and yeah. most studies are made on the gut microbiome so that's why they went for that yeah i guess there's still a lot to know about the microbiome in yes. other places right it's very interesting work uh, in mm. ECMID i think i mentioned that i went to a couple of sessions about you know microbiome in other places might also be important for disease and other pathogenicities of, of absolutely. sorts absolutely yeah. and i can really recommend now this was just a brief overview of the paper if you find this interesting read it because it's so much cool data and so much cool analysis yeah that it, they have done. it also has been covered by several popular news mm. outlets so we're also going to leave a link of something a bit more palatable mm. <laughs> than the whole because it's, there's so many results section in this paper i was yeah mm. really cool thank you Aline, for bringing this to us thank you Okay, so then we move on to the next paper, Eva, that you have read that I believe has a little bit of something to do with what you were doing before in the lab. Yes, actually, I think this paper fits very nicely with some previous science love of mine, science affair I had in the lab, and also with the paper that we just talked about mm -hmm. on, on your end with uh, how the genes move between different species, thanks to the mobilization in plasmids, for example. So the paper has as a title, Host-Specific Plasmid Evolution Explains the Variable Spread of Clinical Antibiotic-Resistant Plasmids. It was published in the journal PNAS, which is, as many of you know, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal, and it was published back in April 6. I chose this paper because... As you said, I worked with plasmids early on on my PhD thesis, and I was actually interested in something pretty similar to a concept that they talked in this paper. My project was basically trying to understand how the bacterial host and the plasmid co-evolve to reduce the cost that a plasmid initially has when it comes into a new bacteria. Mm. Plasmid cost, it means just that, you know, plasmid comes in and plasmid does different things and that utilizes energy that the energy comes from the cell so you can see the plasmid as a parasite kind of uh, mm -hmm. entity and then it uses the energy and things that are produced by the cell which in turn then makes the cell to grow slower mm -hmm. right so that's the assumption that a plasmid comes in it costs to have this new plasmid that's never been there and through evolution there are changes that happen to either that plasmid or the chromosome, or both, that reduces that cost. This is uh, evolution of the plasmid-host combination. And my project was intending to understand what changes happen either in the plasmid or on the chromosome that might end up with this reduction in the cost. In the end, that project didn't really go anywhere. The set of strains we were working on weren't really that clear. There was a little mess up. That's what science happened. It only took me three years to let it go. It should have happened so much earlier. <laughs> That's something I learned through through this project. But this paper is actually looking at something very similar, which is the underlying question, if we know a lot about the plasmid and we know a lot about the specific bacteria that is going to host it, can we predict the evolutionary pathways that they are going to have? And that means if we know this plasmid transfer rate, if you know this plasmid stability numbers, let's just say it, is that going to tell us if a plasmid is going to be successful surviving in a particular strain, right? That's the underlying question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's what they went ahead. And what they did was to make combinations of two different plasmids in three different bacterial strains. Mm -hmm. And the bacterial strains and the plasmids that they used in this study were of clinical significance, which I think is very important. And a key thing of this paper is that they use strains and plasmids that are normally found in the clinics, mm -hmm. creating disease and being of importance for antibiotic-resistant infections. Mm -hmm. Because we work a lot in the lab with these questions, but it might not have the same results. And as we are going to see because of the results of this article, it really, really plays a role. What kind of plasmid you have, what kind of strain recipient or host you have. 
Okay, so so all of these plasmids then they come with a cost. Then. Yes, mm. so they they have a cost when they come in, and what they want to see is like, okay, if we put these plasmids in these different bacteria and we evolve them in this case for fifteen days, with no antibiotics, so there's no selection to have the plasmid, and they are in cultures that are mixed with bacteria that don't have the plasmid. Mm. So they call it a microcosm. So basically, it is in the lab, but you make a mixture of plasmid-containing bacteria and plasmid-lacking bacteria, mm. you transfer that every day for 15 days. And then at the end, you ask the question, okay, have they been transferred to bacteria that didn't have the, the plasmid before? Have they been lost? Is there any sort of stability? Do they transfer better at the end of the evolution together or do they transfer worse? So these are the things that they looked into. And mm. they could see that, yeah, even if you, you have the same plasmid in three different bacteria, they actually behave differently. Ooh. So they might end up with more or less transfer in the end. They might end up with less or more cost in the end, depending. So there is variability in the stability of the plasmids after the experiment, depending on which plasmid strain combination you have. Oh, so the, it gets very complex then, very fast. Yeah, and they were asking, okay, there is a variability. Can we correlate that variability with specific traits we know mm -hmm. of these plasmids? And they can't. So that means that there is something that is happening that is very specific to these combinations and the evolution over these 15 days, that that is what it makes this variability happen. Mm -hmm. And not just the, let's say, in-house traits that this plasmid have for itself kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So by doing these combinations and evolving them and then looking at phenotypes, that means how does this plasmid behave at the end of the experiment, they were able to determine that yes, stability can vary among different plasmid host combinations, that the initial variation on the stability traits of the plasmid does not explain the variable dynamics in the evolution and the results at the end of the experiment, that what is actually happening is that there is a phenotypic rapid evolution, so there is some changes that is happening to the strain and the plasmid. That actually can explain the variability that we see through the experiment and that the evolution is actually a specific two strain plasmid combinations. Mm. So there is some certain parallel evolution for some aspects of it, but in general it will depend on what combination you have of the plasmid and bacteria mm. to be able to determine the fate of that plasmid in that population. I thought it was very cool because to me that kind of feels like is very logical, you mm. know, because if you think about it, a plasmid is this thing that comes into the cell and it has genes. The genes need to be expressed. The genes are being expressed by material and, and building blocks that are built by the cell. So have in mind the plasmid doesn't have its own enzymes. It needs all this machinery that the cell provides in order to express and to do the things that it does. If that machinery differs somehow, the way that the plasma is going to relate to the cell is going to be different. Mm. And the way that the evolution is going to happen is also going to be different. Mm. So to me, this paper was more like kind of showing evidence for something I thought it would be like this rather than, oh, this is shocking, so surprising mm. to me. Just because of what I had understood about plasmids and studied before as well. But this is very important if we want to kind of be a step ahead. Mm. We need to have in account that the fate and the evolution of plasmids in populations of bacteria that might make people sick might really depend on that particular bacteria that is mm. hosting the plasmid and even other plasmids that are present there. So it's very, very individual mm. how the evolution is going to work and what is going to be more successful or less successful. So we need to shift our idea of looking at plasmids as they have inherited traits or instability and more about that the plasmid cell combination is what needs to be studied in order to make predictions mm. on, on this topic. Yeah, and for me, this was very eye-opening in a way that I have usually discussed plasmid in context of, you know, antibiotic resistance. So mm -hmm. they come to the cell and they bring some kind of resistance that will be beneficial from the bacterial cell, you know. Mm -hmm. So the cost and the evolution isn't the main part of what I have learned because mm -hmm. then, then it's like it's a, it's a benefit for the bacteria to have the plasmid. But of course, I mean, in a setting where you don't have selection pressure, yeah. it's going to be a completely different story. Right, yes. And, it, and as you say, that the fact that they will 
evolve in parallel with the bacteria. It's super fascinating. And what is terrifying is when you say that it's depending on the combination of the bacteria and the plasmid. I mean, how many different combinations will we then end up with? I know, I know. It's uh, It makes uh, the puzzle much more uh, complicated to understand and to predict, right? Because if you would say, oh yeah, this kind of plasmids, let's talk about not the individual one, but like ink F or whatever, mm. we can kind of classify them. And it's like, oh, these plasmids have this transfer rate and that's going to to determine if they are more present in clinical strain populations. And that's not really the truth. Mm. The truth is that it depends on which bacteria it was and what particular evolution happened. So they call it here like reshuffle the deck Mm. of like this rapid evolution is strong enough to actually change the course of the evolution in different ways, Mm. depending on how that rapid evolution happens within plasmid strain combination. Oh, it's super fascinating. Yeah, it was really it was really nice. Very straightforward. I really like how they wrote this paper. Mm. I think it was very pleasant to read. You mm. know, sometimes scientific articles can get a little bit wordy mm. and a little bit difficult to understand, especially when it's a very particular result. Yeah. But I think it was very nicely presented, mm. like the whole idea behind and why this is important to have a little bit of a better understanding of mm. So thank you very much to the authors of this paper. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So I think that's all we had for today. But thank you so much, guys, for tuning in and listening to us. And I hope that you will be back here with us next month. Yes, exactly. And just a reminder that if you want to listen to something a little bit different from us this month, we just published recently a live episode from a conference that both Ellie and I went together. So if you want to have a little bit more of us in a different way, then go listen to that episode. Yes, do it. I can really recommend it. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.